to look beyond this year's tax return, look at the big picture and look at what can help the family achieve their goals in the long term. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to episode 293 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. The title of this episode is not 100% correct. What you cover in this episode is not about the opportunity cost of saving tax, but the opportunity cost of making the saving of tax your main focus. But of course, that is far too long as a title, so I had to shorten it. Ian McLean is an accountant and a well-known business advisor among family-owned cattle stations in Queensland and the Northern Territory. So that is Ian's niche, family-owned cattle stations in Queensland and the Northern Territory. And Ian creates content for that market. Together with five other specialists, he co-publishes the Australian Beef Report, which is full of statistics and helpful advice, over 173 pages, so quite a volume. And we will touch on that as well as stock records, so we take a few details. But the main issue Ian will discuss with you is what you pay when you focus too hard on not paying tax. The long-term costs of paying less tax. And if I may play the devil's advocate, when you look at potential tax saving or focusing on saving tax, maybe even, I don't want to say avoiding tax, so I just say saving tax. If you focus on saving tax, the return is obvious. You save money and when you then consider the com compound interest on saving tax, the gains are huge. But of course, it comes at a cost. And I would love to talk with you about this cost of focusing too much on saving tax. That's right. And I'm sure many of the accounts listening will be very familiar with this. There is a very big aversion in the agricultural industry to, to paying tax. And there's a few reasons for that, I think, but people are generally very reluctant to, to pay tax. And I think that does come at a, at a long-term cost. I, I do subscribe to the, the Kerry Packer theory on tax, where if you're not doing what you can to legally minimise it, you want your head red. But it's a very different concept to focus on paying less tax and having that be the, the good outcome. And talking to some accountants, they pull their hair out with people coming in and sitting down, they're mainly focused on this year's tax bill. I think a, um, a subtle but important difference in approach is saying, okay, what can we do to maximise the after-tax profit over time and focus on that being the objective and paying um, what tax is necessary along the way, doing what can be done to reduce that. Um, but, um, um, yes, making the after-tax profit the focus because that's where wealth creation comes from and um, a lot can be done with those after-tax dollars. They're gold, I think. Do you find that this focus on saving tax is particularly prominent within agricultural businesses? Because I think you find it all across Australia in all industries. Do you think it's particularly pronounced within agriculture? From my experience, I think it is. There's a, an aversion there. But yeah, I, I do agree it is across all businesses and industries and no one really likes it. But I think that the successful profit-focused people across industries realise that um, at the end of the day, it's a good thing if they're paying tax, they're, they're making money and creating wealth. Do you think maybe it comes from 
being on a farm, being remote, kind of having to rely on yourself and hence there's a bit of the feeling I'm my own I sort things out on my own I don't need you hence why should I pay tax for everybody else I'm here out on my farm alone and I sort problems out as I as I see them I'm not sure that it's that I think one of the and it's one of the great features of agriculture but one of the challenges with this is that there's a a lack of separation between the business and the individuals. Most agricultural businesses are, are family businesses and there's, there's family businesses across all industries, but the family business in town, whether it be a tyre business or a, um, a grocery store, their, their business is separate to them as individuals. They often don't live at work and their, um, their work may be a part of their identity, but for rural people often it's a big part of their identity. So they have that that lack of separation between them and um, the business. Their workplace is often their home, which um, is another compounding factor, I think, in it. And we have this large capital asset in agriculture with a, a low yield, and the gains aren't taxed on that, um, on that capital asset unless it's sold. And the, the profit is an abstract concept, particularly if people um, are taking drawings out of the business through the year as opposed to PAYG, my preference is, and I recommend to people to, to do PAYG what, um, wages. I think that introduces a number of things. There's discipline in the business in terms of what they have to live on. If it's an agreed amount, then um, if they go to town and want a pair of jeans or a carton of beer, then they need to pay for that out of their wages rather than using the, um, the, the business account and the accountant drafting that up to drawings at the end of the year. It also means that um, there's compulsory superannuation on that and a big problem in the rural industries, unfunded retirement through people not paying themselves. Another result of that is the profit's a bit of an abstract concept. People are, are used to cash flow, but the accountant works out profit from a, a tax point of view at the end of the year, but it's not easily seen or tangible, whereas the, the tax amount is quite tangible. So they probably don't see it in relation to the the profit for the year and see this big chunk of money going out in, in tax where and business structures comes into this as well where um, a lot of rural businesses are partnerships. There's more and more using company and trust structures. But, um, and again, it's back to that point I made about the lack of separation between business and individuals where it's sort of their, their personal income tax and the tax of the, um, the partnership of the business all in together. I think um, that sort of makes it a bit of a, a bit of pills sometimes when the accountant works out they have to pay this much tax on the, the profit of the business and the drawings through the year, if that makes sense. Although pay-as-you-go instalments should pick up a bit of that. Oh, they the should. I agree, but that's that's not often done. I think <laughs> I, I advocate it and I do suggest, I suggest accountants should as well to, to set family members up on, um, on PAYG on a reasonable wage so that, like I said, has that discipline, the forced savings, and also when it comes time to succession, which is another sort of looming liability for a lot of rural businesses, if the, the children or the siblings that have been working at home have been paid a reasonable wage, then that can make um, succession a lot easier. If they haven't been, then succession can be quite difficult later on. So, yes, if PAYG is used, that makes it easier. But um, often it's not. Often it's all um, drawings, depending on how it's set up. But um, I much prefer to see PAYG 
than drawings. Why does paying wages affect succession? Because what I'm thinking is if if the son works full-time on the farm, surely he would be compensated somehow. It might be cash in hand and not wage, but he would be compensated somehow. Hence, why does it affect succession? Oh, because often they, and it, and it's varied. It's it's very different across businesses. Some rural businesses do this very well and it's not an issue. Others don't, but, you know, if we look at a business with, say two siblings one's gone off and and got a career elsewhere and is earning commercial wage one stays at home may get a house provided and a vehicle provided and um tucker provided but then may only have a you know a small drawings twenty forty thousand dollars a year or something like that um when um when it comes time to to work out what the fair outcome is for the family then there's a um, huge potential for conflict. Well, that's right. And it's it's a very big problem across agriculture. Often the, the funds aren't there to pay those wages. Um, if that's if it's done as a wage, commercial wage, and like I said, some businesses that I see do this very well and it makes it a non-issue. The person working in the business is earning what um, they'd have to pay someone else to be doing that. So there's no difference to, that needs to be accounted for down the track that and having unfunded retirement because the previous generation didn't take any more than drawings and it falls on the business to fund the retirement does um, create little time bombs within the business. Yes, and I can see two huge time bombs. One is if one sibling works in the city on a normal wage and the other sibling works full-time on the farm and increases the value of the farm but is not really paid for it, when then comes succession and if the um, sibling in the city then wants half of the farm whereas the other sibling actually worked for free on the farm to get it to where it is, I can imagine that's a huge breeding ground for conflict. That's right and that's not an uncommon scenario. And I can imagine the other huge conflict is and you already touched on it, is super. The parents very often don't have any super. The farm is really the super. And the farm with the small business CGT concessions often has the super locked in, the um, capital gain of the farm. But of course, that can only be freed if it's sold. But of course, it can be sold to the sibling who's working, to the son who's working on the farm. But of course, if the son has never really been properly paid, then of course, the son doesn't have the money to pay out the the family and that can I can imagine can be another time bomb that's right yes coming back to the point you were making earlier that yes a healthy awareness of tax is good but making it the sole focus very much limits the business and it limits the business because if you don't focus on tax but you focus on growth then the sky is your limit you might be able to grow the profit by twofold Five folds, ten folds. There is no limit to what you can do. But if you focus on tax, there's only a very finite amount that you can save. You know, you might save five thousand dollars a year, or six thousand, or maybe ten thousand. But it, it's very limited. Whereas on the other side, the growth is unlimited. It is whatever you make it. That, that's right. And um, yeah, it's about where, where that focus is. And yeah, I agree. There's there's limited amount that can be done to reduce tax, and the the best way to not pay pay, pay tax, sorry, is to to not make a profit, which is obviously pretty limiting, particularly when it comes to 
to funding things like um, succession and retirement. Do you find that the attitude to tax is a question of mindset? So do you find that it is a certain type of personality who is very, very focused on tax? They're usually also very frugal. They're very frugal in their, in their lifestyle and hence very focused on tax. Whereas if you have a more jovial personality who shouts around at the pub and is, yeah, do you find there's a, there's, there's a certain personality that, over, that is more likely to focus on tax? I don't know if it's personality. I think um, attitude does come into it. And part of the problem is that, you know, like I said before, these are, are capital-intensive businesses and often they um, there's not a lot of, of cash flow there. And that's something we work with people is looking at you know, what the business can do to improve that. But if a business doesn't have a lot of cash, it um, it can be a bit of a bitter pill to swallow to pay um, a reasonable amount of that out to the to the tax office and they don't always have the the profit figure is a you know an abstract concept then to to relate that to. But it is the the mindset those that that are more profit focused and not all producers are profit focused and, and nor should they be. Some um, you know enjoy the lifestyle and they're happy for the to do what they do and even for the place to be their super fund and sell that to retire. But those that that want to be able to um, fund retirement and succession um, are generally more profit-focused and do look at the tax as a, a cost of doing business and focusing on that long-term wealth creation. Do you find that if the focus on tax almost creates a fear of success? Because, of course, success always means more tax. And so if tax is viewed as this huge pain, then it translates to a fear of success? In extreme cases, yes, I think and I've seen that where people you know, haven't done musters because they'd have to pay too much tax as a result of it. And that you know, comes at a massive opportunity cost, but they haven't had to, to write out a cheque for those foregone, um, foregone earnings. So they don't see it, whereas if they had to, To pay tax, I'd have to write out a um, check for it, but and that, that's in extreme circumstances. But that does happen. Um, but yeah, generally, I think people realise that it is a, a cost of doing business. Um, but it is yeah, there's a, a diverse spread across the industry from those that um, are profit focused and um, are happy to be paying tax, and others that um, avoid it like the plague. I can imagine this uh, the, this issue we are talking about. I can imagine that affects very much the accountant or the tax agent who was preparing the tax returns, etc. But does it also affect you as the advisor? Um, it depends. I've got the the luxury, I suppose, of working with people that are more profit focused. It does still come up, but probably less so. I think it, it does affect the the accountant and the few accountants I talk to. You know, would would often love to be talking bigger picture, long-term stuff, and they've got the skills to do it. But often you know, they have a meeting with the client and their client comes in, they know they're being charged by the hour. So they say, right, let's get this done with quickly. What can we do to reduce tax this year? Okay, good, thanks, and leave. And if they've you know, shaved a few thousand dollars off their tax bill, they see that as a, a good meeting. But um, what you know, we encourage people to do is sort of sit down, you know, look forward the next few years, talk that through with their accountant, and say, okay, well, what's going to get us in the position we need to be um, going forward to get there? I've seen some pretty bad scenarios where it's cost businesses hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to undo things 
that we've done, and this comes down to, to stamp duty and transfer for property purchases um, rather than income tax, but it's still important. It's cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars later on to, to undo things that were done to, to reduce um, you know, any transfer duties or whatever the um, cost may be when they're purchasing the property. So I just think it's important for people to, you know, to, and the accountants generally, I think, will welcome it to say to their accountant, okay, we want to take a long-term view here. This is what we want to achieve over the next 20 or 30 years and um, and look at that rather than making the entire focus on um, this year's tax return. What software do most farms use for their accounting? Are they on zero like many small businesses or is there a completely different software that's very common among farms it's very varied across the board i wouldn't say there is one zero has yeah, become a lot more popular in the last few years as it's um increased market share there are ag specific accounting softwares such as phoenix by ag data and there's also practical systems has one as well They're quite good from an agricultural perspective, um, but others use, yeah, um, mild zero as well. It is quite varied across the board and there wouldn't be one dominant one I wouldn't have thought. Yeah. Do you find that a lot of, especially the, the, the large remote stations, do you find that a lot of them are still on a server-based accounting software package because internet is still an issue? Oh, some are. I think most are on cloud-based now, but even if it's cloud-based for syncing and not entirely based on the cloud, um, but most have sufficient internet for that now. But yeah, there's some where that is a, a big bottleneck in how they can manage their business. How I learned about you was because you published the Australian Beef Report. When did you start that? And is that basically just a natural product of your work anyway? In some ways it is. So we saw, well, it started quite a while ago, but we, my colleague uh, Phil Holmes, who I mentioned before, has been my mentor and I saw a, a gap in the market for good information on what business performance actually is, what drives it and how to improve that. So in 2017, we prepared, published and released the, the first Australian Beef Report and that what that is is the most comprehensive analysis of beef business performance in Australia at the family business level. We look at Northern Australia and Southern Australia, all the regions, um, beef producing regions across there, report on what the average performance is by region, the top 25% performance. We also break it up by herd size and market and um, look at what's driving that, what separates the top performers and what profit focused producers can do to improve their performance. And we, we updated that with a, a completely new publication in 2020, um, which gave a, an updated 12-year snapshot of the industry and financial performance. We also went to a lot of leading producers and got their perspectives on running a successful beef business and, and tried to bottle that and include that in the report, which is quite a good addition. And we also included a chapter on the effective utilisation of the natural resource base, which obviously underpins the, the beef industry. I can imagine there are three things. Please tell me which one it is mainly. One is it helps your work anyway, because by collating the data, etc., it makes you more knowledgeable of the industry. You can refer to it, etc. B, potential clients become aware of you. I can imagine it might be a great funnel to attract new clients and to position yourself in the market. And C, 
maybe the report itself already returns a profit. I think it, it retails at about $395 or so. Maybe the number of reports um, already you know, give you a return on investment this way. Can you tell me which one is the dominant one? Um, that's very astute. I agree with all those three. So that's three out of three there. Um, yeah, it retails for 295. Yes, it, it does all of that. It helps um, us provide good data that we can use to compare clients against. It does help us demonstrate our, our capability and the data and insights that we, we do have. But we thought it was important that it be a, um, a standalone product that, um, and we also um, prepare and publish it completely independently. We don't seek any funding or sponsorship for it because we want to be able to say to people to buy it that it is independent and um, developed only for them and have it as a, um, a revenue stream in its own right, which, um, which it is. There's, um, it goes out to a, a pretty small market and um, it isn't cheap to put together. So it does have a, um, a high per unit cost, but compared to the value that people can get out of it, that's quite small. Back that up with a, a money back guarantee, um, which um, um, yeah, people haven't had to, to use yet. Can you give me a rough idea how many copies you, you sell? Is it in the dozens, the hundreds, the thousands, the ten thousands? Uh, it's in the hundreds, not the thousands. Ian, do you mind if I hijack you and ask you something else that you touched on in our email conversation? And that is the importance of stock records. Can you tell me how stock records work and what they are? I assume they are that you write down exactly, let's say you're a cattle farmer, that you write down exactly how many cows you have. But tell me, what do stock records look like and what purpose do they fulfill and how are they usually done? Are they done within the um, accounting system? So, for example, within Zero, or is it a completely different software? Okay, so it's quite varied again. Within seed stock operations, those studs, they would they have much more detailed records and they can track parentage back generations, but commercial operators don't require that. For commercial operators, it's it's quite varied. Some people have spreadsheets they've built themselves or had assistants to use, notebooks. Some people even use old-fashioned handwritten ledger books. There's um, different accounting software and apps out now that do it. Some work quite well, others don't. And I think this would apply to, to all industries and not agriculture, but software and apps only process data that's entered into them. Um, if good data is, isn't entered into them, then they, they serve no purpose. So good stock records from our point of view and what we've, we want to do is we want to know what the, the inventory has been over the year so we can work out what the, the grazing load is in animal units. That's um, our standard measure to compare different herd sizes, different herd structures in different locations. We do that on an animal unit basis. So we need good numbers for that. We need to know what was there at the start of the year, what was the herd profile, what um, purchases came in, what were the natural increase, what was sold, what died. And that's always difficult because there's a lot of deaths that simply aren't seen or known about. So that's the, the number that's used to balance it up. And what's on hand at the end of the year, we want all that to, to reconcile across the year by class and in total. We want those numbers to match pretty closely with what's in the paddock. It is very hard in these extensive places to get clean musters 
and no one goes out on the 30th of June, 30th of June and does a, um, a full clean muster. So it is hard to do, but when we work with businesses, it's one of the most challenging areas to understanding their performance because their grazing load, their, their herd income, their herd productivity, some key figures which we analyse for the business derive from that. And um, most people have been able to get away with the, the records they've had to date. Some do it very well, have good um, good records, others less so, but um, it is a, a very big challenge and it's something we're developing resources on and working with people on. What I think one of the challenges is is a lack of accountability. One of the, the great things about family businesses is that they're, they're only accountable to themselves and don't have a, a boss or a head office or an owner bring them up, but the, the downside of that is they need to make sure they've got processes there for modern um, multi-million dollar businesses, which is what they are, to have that. The the pastoral companies generally have far better herd records because they have that inbuilt accountability, which means they, they know what they have and are able to, to reconcile those numbers. So that I think, you know, historically, businesses um, that may not have been essential but moving forward, I think that's more and more important to have those accurate herd records to understand their herd performance, herd income and grazing load. Does that um, answer yes. your question there? Yes, yes. My next question is probably difficult to answer, but maybe you can answer it in a general way. And that is, is it common to not go down to the individual animal in your stock records? Let's say you have 150 Angus heifers, uh, would you just have them as 150 of that type or would you go down to the serial number? So would you have each animal in your records and then track that animal? Good question. So the, again, for seed stock operations, they um, would have that individual work because they need the, the parentage of all the animals to be able to do that. And uh, what is a seed stock operation? Sorry, a stud. A business that's there to produce genetics in the form of bulls or, or rams as opposed to commercial operator producing um, beef. If someone's selling bulls, they need that information. Yeah, so basically if you do breeding, then of course you need to track the heritage of each or the parentage of each animal. If you breed stud bulls and have that information, many people sell bulls without that information just as, as herd bulls. But as stud bulls, you need that. But the use of individual animal ID, one of the, the requirements of livestock for um, moving them for biosecurity reasons is they all need a um, electronic ID in their ear, which has a unique number. And some businesses, are, and this is an area where there's been a lot of work done the last decade, using that information there to track individual animals. So... First and foremost, having the, the whole inf the whole herd information, the total number by class and the total herd numbers is most important and that should be the priority. But within that, um, the use of this electronic ID, which can be um, read with an electronic reader and the animal's history can be brought up, can be used to drive the individual animal performance. So if a cow comes into the yard, they're able to to bring up the screen says, okay, well, last time this animal came through, it was pregnant. It should therefore um, be wet or have a calf at foot. If it doesn't, they know something's gone wrong. If an animal comes in, they say, okay, well, it missed a calf last year. 
if it's missed again this year, it's gone. So that's an area from a management point of view that um, a lot of work's been done in the last decade and it's becoming a an increasing management tool. But that's at the at the paddock level, um, which obviously drives business performance in terms of the big picture of understanding business performance. Just the total numbers is um, is the most important initially. And for this animal ID, etc., you would have specialized software. You wouldn't be able to do that in zero. Oh no, no, not in zero. And zero um, does have livestock add-ins, but they're they're separate to to zero. Yes, and there's specialized software that does that. A lot can be done in Excel on that, but there are some some good software being developed to to help people manage that individual animal ID. Yeah, but I can imagine that individual animal ID software or in general any stock record software would then possibly feed into a normal accounting software, be it Zero or QuickBooks, through a bridge. Yes, yes. I think it's important for accountants to, and a lot do, encourage their clients to, to look beyond this year's tax return, look at the big picture and um, look at what can help the family achieve their goals in the long term. And also I think it's important for advisors to have a, a team approach. So accountants, um, agribusiness advisors such as myself, perhaps even banks and lawyers and that sort of thing, all of which have unique and important skill sets to, to work together for the best outcome for the client across those skill sets. Welcome back. Before the interview, I asked Ian how he got where he is now. Here's what he said. So I grew up on a sheep and cattle place in the Mulga country of southwest Queensland, out between Rome and Charleville. How uh, remote yeah. was it? Did you have um, to fly to your station? or? No, I didn't have to fly. We had a, a dirt road there. And remoteness is all relative. So it wasn't that remote compared to a lot of other people I deal with now. Um, but it may seem remote to some people. So 110 kilometres from the nearest town, too far from town to go to school, so to do School of the Air education. In those days, it was School of the Air through the old um, VHF radio for the first six years of my schooling and then went on to, to boarding school after that. So, and where did you go to boarding school? Uh, in Toowoomba, and uh, the place that I grew up on is about seven hours west of Toowoomba. I think Toowoomba has quite a few boarding schools for Queensland. I have the feeling that everybody who's boarding in Queensland goes to Toowoomba. Oh, there's a lot of choice here for schools in Toowoomba. It is a, a bit of a hub there. So, And it was at school I studied accounting at school, and I was interested in applying accounting back to agriculture, particularly the family business. and. Um, using that to help better understand the, the family business. So I went on from school to university, studied accounting. Where did you study? Uh, in Toowoomba at University of Southern Queensland. Uh, then went on and worked in an accounting firm in the Northern Territory for Deloitte for um, a while and enjoyed that. Learned a lot there, but I yeah, learned a hell of a lot. One of the things I learned was that I didn't want to become a professional accountant so um, because I couldn't really see the connection back to what I wanted to do, applying it back to, to agriculture for management. So I, um, I left there, took a lot of um, knowledge and experience with me, 
and was fortunate to get a job with the Department of Crime and Industries in the Northern Territory and through there started working with a an agribusiness consultant in who had a producer group there who was doing what I was initially interested in in terms of applying accounting and business skills back to agricultural businesses and that brought me full circle effectively and I've been reasonably fortunate for the last 20 years to have him as a, a mentor and um, that's helped me do what I do now, which is um, an agribusiness advisor, work with pastoral businesses across Northern Australia. We do um, a few different things, but one of our main business activities is benchmarking or analysing businesses, and that involves applying management accounting principles to, to working out how businesses are performing in their own right, how they compare to others and um, how they can improve that performance. And your business is called Bush Agri, correct? Uh, Bush Agribusiness, yes. Yeah, Bush Agribusiness. You are the founder or the co-founder, that is your business? Yes, I set this up just over 10 years ago to to set up a business to to work with pastoral businesses to help them understand and improve their business performance with a, a focus on the financial side of it. Also, obviously, that's intertwined and inseparable from the production side of it. You don't do the tax returns for the uh, the farms, etc. You're more on the cost accounting and business advisory side. Absolutely. Don't go near that. Encourage people to, to get a good accountant and work with them on the, the tax and business structure side of it. We're looking at the operating performance of the business, understanding how that is performing, where it could be performing better, and, and focusing on that. Don't, um, don't get into the tax area. There's well-qualified specialists that can focus on that. In the next episode, episode 294, Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne will talk about work-related self-education expenses. In theory, a straightforward topic, but there have been a couple of very interesting court cases. So until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.